as we pray this morning, let me read these words from Psalm 119. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your word. Father, we know from experience as well as from reading your word that your word is truth. And this is the ultimate guideline, the plumb line, the canon, that which we use to determine the veracity of everything else. And Father, it is the guideline by which we ought to live our lives. We know this is not an easy thing, and, and uh, you tell us in your word that we can't e cannot even do it without your strength or without your help. And so, Lord, we choose to submit to your indwelling Holy Spirit that he will give us the strength and the desire to walk in obedience to the Word of God. Lord, bless each of us here this morning. I pray that as we study your Word, you will grant to us understanding of the truth and that the truth will truly set us free as uh, Jesus uh, proclaimed it would do. And Lord, I ask that uh, we will then reflect the truth of your Word into the hearts and lives of, of family, of, of children, of parents, of friends, and Lord, truly, therefore, be your servants. As your word is proclaimed this morning in the church service and the other Sunday school classes, we trust you to anoint and empower it. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Before we begin this morning, let me just mention this so I won't forget it later, and I'll be putting this up here. But this Sunday and next Sunday and throughout the week, uh, this is the time when we focus on the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. Uh, it, it tells you on here that November 10 and 17 and, and the week between the two Sundays, hundreds of thousands of congregations comprising millions of Christians from all denominations around the world join together in prayer, not only for the persecuted church, but with the persecuted church. You probably saw this in the bulletin. I hope you read it. And it mentions down here that since the death of Christ, an estimated 43 million Christians have become martyrs. 50% of those in the last century alone. Um, 200 million Christians are being persecuted every day, 60% of which are children. Every day, 300 Christians are killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. So the International Day of Prayer is when we join forces with the church around the world and pray for the persecuted Christians wherever they might be. So we'll, we'll do that in our prayer time, but let's remember that throughout the week ahead of us. If you'll turn to 2 Samuel chapter 15, let me read beginning at verse 13. 2 Samuel chapter 15, reading at verse 13. Then a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. And David said to all of his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, and let us flee, for otherwise none of us shall escape from Absalom. Go in haste, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring calamity down on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Then the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king chooses. So the king went out, and all his household with him. But the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out, and all the people with him, and they stopped at the last house. Now all his servants passed by him, all the Carathites and the Pelathites and the Gittites, 600 men who had come with him from Gath, passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why will you also go with us? 
Return and remain with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile. Return to your place. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander with us while I go where I will? Return and take your brothers. Mercy and truth will be with you. But Ittai answered the king and said, As the Lord lives and as my lord the king lives, surely wherever my lord the king may be, whether for death or for life, there also your servant will be. Therefore David said to Ittai, Go and pass over. So Ittai the Gittite passed over with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. While all the country was weeping with a loud voice, all the people passed over. The king also passed over the brook Kidron, and all the people passed over towards the way of the wilderness. Kind of shocking, isn't it, from what we have known before. David had been reigning in, in Jerusalem by this time for many, many years. And by this time, it became quite clear how dysfunctional his family was, to use a modern term. Absalom, as we noted, is David's third son. And he had lost respect for his father David because David had refused or had at least neglected to punish or to deal with Amnon after he had raped Absalom's sister Tamar. So as we know, as we studied the passage, Absalom decided to take the matters into his own hand and he assassinated his brother and then he fled north uh, to Gesher where he stayed for three years with his maternal grandfather in some degree of security there. After three years, you may remember, Joab finally convinced David to invite Absalom back. Joab didn't like the situation because Absalom was either next to the, you know, was either to be the heir or the one next to the heir to the throne. And so he wanted him here in Jerusalem or there in, in Jerusalem. So David finally relented and, and brought Absalom back, you may remember. But Absalom's respect for his father was further eroded by the fact that through two whole years after being brought back to Jerusalem, David made, made uh, Absalom stay in, in, in his portion of the royal palace and never invited him to the center of power, never invited him into his presence, didn't even want to see his face. When finally, again after the intercession of Joab, uh, David did invite Absalom back into his presence. Absalom seems to have sensed the fact that David had lost confidence in him. And it didn't seem to Absalom that he was being prepared or geared up to be the one to inherit the throne. He, even though David had not said so, he had a sense that he was not going to be considered the successor to his father. We know that Absalom desperately wanted the throne for himself. And so he began a campaign, and, and we read about that uh, in the first part of this chapter. He began a campaign to woo the men of Israel to, to see him as the logical person to be king of Israel. Sort of a political campaign, if you will. A kind of a subtle smear campaign against his father and, and, and an exaltation of himself. But we find further that he was too impatient to wait until his father died. And so he spent a great amount of time and a great amount of energy in an effort to build a nationwide support network, as we would call it today. Cells were established all over Israel of individuals who were committed to the cause of Absalom and would be willing at a moment's notice to rise up and claim, uh, seize the day, you know, carpe diem, 
uh, on behalf of Absalom. Finally, that day came when Absalom felt that he was strong enough to successfully usurp the throne from his father, David. When David finally became aware of the extent of the uprising, the first thing that came to his mind was fear of a bloodbath in the capital city of Jerusalem. David had brought Israel to unprecedented wealth, unprecedented power, to territory they had never dreamed of possessing. David had served the kingdom well, and yet he wasn't sure how many of the people of Jerusalem would stand at his side if his son Absalom attacked the city in an attempt to take the throne for himself. Therefore, rather than trying to hold the throne against the insurgents and take the chance of significant bloodletting in the royal city, David chose to abandon the city to the rebels. There are times when actions such as David takes might be viewed as weakness. But David's actions are taken not because he personally was afraid of Absalom or afraid of death, but because he was afraid of the damage that would be done to his people and because he believed in the justice of God, that God would bring all things to the correct conclusion. Apparently, the royal courtiers who were remaining in, in Jerusalem uh, were still loyal to David. Now, you remember Ahithophel, who was one of David's chief counselors, had defected to Absalom's cause. But those that were still loyal to David stood with him, and so he took them and all of his family, except for ten concubines. Ten concubines were left behind for two reasons. One was that they would oversee the care of the royal palace and make sure things were, were kept in good order and didn't, weren't, wasn't looted or something uh, because the royal family was gone. And also as a statement that David was not abdicating the throne, simply moving himself out of harm's way, but he wasn't abdicating the throne. He wasn't handing the throne to his son Absalom. He still was king. And then he fled the capital. Scripture tells us that at the last house, just before leaving the gate, through the gateway and out of the city, at the last house, uh, David stopped to make sure that everything was moving along, that his entourage was coming along here, and probably to check and see who exactly were those that were fleeing with him. But it wasn't like there were five people and so he could easily keep track of them. There were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. And so we wanted to see who exactly was leaving with him. And so the scripture tells us that the Carathites and the Pelathites were amongst those that were fleeing with David. And this is to be expected. These were the most loyal individuals to David. They were his personal bodyguard. Uh, they were the Praetorian guard, if you will. Uh, they were his personal messengers, the personal enforcers of his will throughout the land. And they were fiercely loyal to David. And the so-called Gittites or Gathites, uh, are mentioned as well. The 600 men, and, and you know, every time we hear the 600, we think of David's 600, the guys that were with him in the wilderness when he was being chased around by King Saul. And, and so these men were still with him. They were still loyal. They were the core of his army along with the Carathites and the Pelathites. And they're, they're called Gittites because of the time that David had spent with them in Gath. And so they kind of got the nickname for having been, you know, it's, it's kind of like if a group of 
of um, you know American uh, troops were stationed in Canada, they might get the nickname within this country of being Canadians, even though they're not. And so they were called the, the Gittites. And altogether, I, I think it would be fair to say that David had at least a thousand hardcore troops that would die for him rather than abandon him. Now, that's, I think that's a conservative number. You have the 600, you have the Pelethites and the Carathites, who certainly were at 200 each, and, and yet, you know, how many altogether, we do not know. What is fascinating about this passage, however, is one Gittite is singled out. A newcomer, a man who actually was a Philistine, rather than his men who were just nicknamed as Philistines. And his name is Ittai. Apparently, he was uh, rather recently from Gath. It seems that he knew David from the days when David was in Gath. Now, remember the story. David had, uh, when he was fleeing from King Saul, he went over and allied himself with the king of Gath for a while to get out of harm's way. And during that time, he demonstrated, of course, further his bravery, his, his superiority in combat. And apparently several Philistines, who were not killed by him, <laughs> uh, thought of him as somebody worth following. And so when, when Ittai was forced to flee his home, and we, we don't know why he did this, you know, did he get in trouble at home? Was, he, um, was his poster in the, in the, in the uh, Gathite post office, you know, wanted? We don't know, but he fled to David. And here he came into, uh, into David's service. The wording of verses 19 and 20 seemed to indicate that he was recent in coming. David says yesterday. He doesn't literally mean the day before the day he's speaking. But just recently you have come into my service. And therefore, you don't have to flee with me. You're so new in the job that when Absalom comes in and takes over, he will see that he won't think of you as being loyal to me or being one of my followers. He'll accept you and you can keep your same position that you have now. So why flee with me? Why don't you stay here? You'll be more secure here than chasing around with me in the wilderness where I don't even know where I'm going to be. But what is interesting about this, and it fits very much with what our pastor has been teaching in these past several Sundays, David pronounces a blessing on Ittai. And he says in verse 20, mercy and truth be with you. Mercy and truth be with you. And these are two words in the Old Testament. They're frequently combined together. Mercy and truth. And uh, you know the word mercy because our pastor keeps harping on it and uh, telling us chesed, which is usually translated loving kindness, but is also translated grace. Grace and truth, emeth, truth. And these go together all the time. You don't have grace without truth. And in God's economy, you don't have truth without grace. So the two fit together constantly and always. Um, the, the word for truth that is here implies firmness. It, it implies verity. It implies dependability. The word of God is absolutely dependable. It never fails. Both of these are described as characters or attributes of God himself. God is perfect grace, perfect loving kindness, perfect mercy, and God is all truth. You remember the account when the Lord, uh, when Moses encountered the Lord in Mount Sinai, and Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. And so God stuck him in a cleft of the rock, and God passed by uh, Moses 
And God said of himself, I am always abounding in chesed and emeth, in grace and truth. Psalm 25 gives a statement that hammers that point home pretty well, I think. Psalm 25, uh, verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble to justice. He teaches the humble his ways. All the paths, all the paths of the Lord are loving kindness, our grace, our mercy, and truth. To those who keep his covenant and his testimonies for his name's sake, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. So all of the paths, all of the actions, everything that God does is full of his grace, his mercy, his loving kindness, and his truth. And he pours that out into our lives every single day. There's not a day in which he says, well, today I'm, going to, uh, I'm not going to give mercy and truth to so-and-so because they've been a jerk. No, God doesn't do that. Because these are his attributes. This is his character. This is who he is. So what is interesting about this is that this is a powerful blessing. You know, if you want to give a blessing to someone, say, you know, the, the, the chesed and the emeth of God be upon you. And, and, and that's what David is saying to Ittai. Now, he can't say that to just any old body. You know, he wouldn't just go along and say that to any old, you know, Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. Uh, he, he would say it to somebody whom he believed was a fellow believer in the God of Israel. So I believe that this is a statement whereby he is saying to Ittai, I acknowledge that you are one of us in believing in our Lord and God. Because only God can really make grace and truth as a blessing upon anyone. I think David held Ittai in extremely high esteem. Ittai, on his part, you discover in this passage, demonstrates his loyalty to David by verbalizing his commitment in words that really are kind of reminiscent of the words of Ruth to Naomi. Naomi. He says, wherever my Lord the King may be, whether for life or for death, there also your servant will be. I have dedicated to myself to you for good or for evil, for life or for death. Wherever you go, I will go, is what he's saying. To, to reflect the words that Naomi, uh, Ruth said to Naomi. Your God will be my God. Well, David didn't push him. You know, David was, of course, glad to have such a person, a loyal person in his midst, and so he accepted his proclamation of loyalty and allowed him to join him in his flight out of the city of Jerusalem. He was offering him the opportunity to remain and not have to put up with the difficulties of, of, of running around through the wilderness again. David knew all about running around the wilderness. He'd done it for a very long time. And I don't think he was looking forward to it because David's not a young man anymore. But Ittai joined with David, with all of his servants and all of his family, we're told. While David and his followers exited the city, there were many who could not go. Men who had families and women who, who, who had to remain. They had jobs. They, they, they couldn't just pick up and leave. 
And so they stood there watching their king and, and his followers leave, and the scripture says they wept and they lamented the flight of their king. I'm sure many thought, how could this be? You know, how could this be? In spite of his many faults, David was loved by the majority of his people. And, and you know, um, actually, uh, there probably has never been a king in history who has been loved by all of his people. It just isn't human nature. You've always got some people who are naysayers. No matter how good a job you do, you cannot please everyone. And so David certainly had those who were opposed to him. Otherwise, Absalom would have nobody in his army or joining forces with him. But the majority still favored. So David led his entourage out of the city, sadly, uh, down the eastern slope of the city of David and into the valley of the Kedron and across the Kedron. Scripture says towards the wilderness of Jordan, but of course before he was going to get to the wilderness of Jordan, he had to climb up and over the Mount of Olives. It's interesting that the word Kedron means dark and turbid. Now for those of us who have been to modern Jerusalem, we've walked through the Kedron Valley, we're thinking dark and turbid. There's hardly, hardly any water in the Kedron. <laughs> you know, it's not much of a creek. Creek, wherever, depending what part of the country you're from. And yet, I think in the days that we're talking about, that the word wasn't such an exaggeration because in days before the control of water bodies occurred and in the days before there was a tremendous uh, population in the land uh, sucking up all the water as there is today, uh, when the winter rains came and the snows melted, the Cadron was probably a, a torrent as it moved down through there. It, it's kind of like the Kishon. If you go up into the uh, valley of Esdraelon, Jezreel, in the north part of Israel, and, and you, you travel through there and you see the brook Kishon and you think, how could this thing ever be called a torrent? Which it was called, you know, back in the, in the days of, um, or would be called in the days of Elijah and had been called back in the days of the judges. The torrent, Kishon. Oh, torrent? This kind of lazy little creek wandering through here, drying up half the time. I think the climate, too, it's been demonstrated, the climate has changed. It's definitely drier there uh, than it used to be. Well, we know this to be true because if you go into the center of the uh, Sahara Desert, there, there are two major mountain ranges, one called the Ahagar and the other called Tibesti. They're old uh, volcanic uh, ranges in there. And you'll discover if you go out there, not that I've been out there, but I've read of those who have been out there, that uh, there are wall paintings and cave paintings of all kinds of beasts and creatures and people, none of which live anywhere within hundreds of miles of the spot today. And so... You know, probably back in the days of Abraham, the Sahara Desert was like the Sudan. It was a grassland, and it wasn't a, a harsh desert as it is today. And the climate has changed over the last thousands of years, and the deserts have grown, and the grasslands have been lost. And so today, the Cadrone isn't much. Uh, you probably wouldn't even have to have a pole to get across it most of the time, just step over it. But at one time, it probably was a turbid torrent. Let's read on in chapter 15 at verse 24. Now, behold, Zadok also came, and all the Levites with him, carrying the ark of the covenant of God. 
And they set down the ark of God, and Abiathar came up until all the people had finished passing from the city. And the king said to Zadok, Return the ark of God to the city. If I find favor in the sight of the Lord, then he will bring me back again and show me both it and his habitation. But if he should say thus, I have no delight in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. The king said also to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Return to the city in peace, and your two sons with you, your son Ahimez and Jonathan the son of Abiathar. See, I am going to wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. Therefore Zadok and Abiathar returned the ark of God to Jerusalem and remained there. Zadok and Abiathar were co-priests. Abiathar, if you may remember, was a young man who fled the massacre of the priests that Saul had perpetrated at Nob many, many decades before. Abiathar had fled with the Urim and Thummim and uh, entered David's camp, and David had made him his chaplain. So Abiathar had been with David for many, many years. Zadok was from a different branch of the family of Aaron. He is first mentioned, you may remember or may not remember, back in the 8th chapter. He was called a seer by virtue of the fact that he was the one who actually by that time possessed the Urim and Thummim and thus had the opportunity to seek the will and the mind of the Lord. What we're going to discover as we move on or as you read on, and particularly when you get into 1 Kings, you discover that there becomes a gulf between Zadok and Abiathar. Zadok will become the sole priest. There will be no co-priesthood in the days of Solomon. There'll be one priest, and that is Zadok, because Zadok commits himself wholeheartedly to the cause of Solomon, whereas Abiathar makes the mistake of choosing the side of Adonijah, David's fourth son, and going with him in challenging Solomon for the throne of Israel. Abiathar will lose his position and his power, ultimately his life. The descendants of Zadok will become the only acceptable high priestly family. If you read in the 40th chapter of Ezekiel, you discover that it says that only the descendants of Zadok could minister at the altar and come near to the Lord. Abiathar and Zadok and the ark stood guard there at the gate of Jerusalem as David and his men and the women that were part of his household were passing out through the gate of the city. They were standing there as, as a silent and maybe not a silent blessing upon the king as he left. Maybe they were verbalizing. He doesn't say so. But maybe they were verbalizing the blessing of God as they left. And the, pre and the presence of the ark, of course, was a symbol of blessing upon David as he was leaving the city. But David would not allow the ark or the priest to go with him. David cared for his people, and he cared for his city. And so he ordered Abiathar and Zadok, go back to the city, take your sons with you, and put the ark back into the tent that I have built for it in the city of Jerusalem, because I want the city to function normally, and I don't want the people to feel God-forsaken. If the ark is gone, the people will feel that God's presence is gone. And so he ordered the ark to remain what you discover in these little things, sometimes seemingly little things, on the part of David is, is a man with a true heart of God, a man who, who really cares about his people, a, a man of sacrifice. 
In verses 25 and 26, we find express statements of David's implicit faith in the justice of God. He remembers, of course, that the Lord had warned him through Nathan that because of his sin with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah, that there would be rebellion within his own household. David humbly submits, therefore, to the will of God. He does not rebel against it, which he could have done. He could have said, God, I'm king. I've built this great empire. I've followed you. How dare you do this to me? He said, in effect, if God wills, he will bring me back to power in Jerusalem again. If not, so be it. Let him do to me what seems good to him. That should be the motto of our lives. Let him do to me what seems good to him. That is what, of course, made David a great man of God. Not his victory over Goliath, as, as wonderful as that was, as, as encouraging as that was to Israel. Not his construction of a great empire, the largest Israel has ever known in its history. Not his brilliant leadership of his people and his wise government. None of those things made him a great man of God, but it was his humility. I, I don't think any word um, could be more importantly placed on the tombstone of a Christian than that this was a humble man or woman of God. What greater word, uh, you know, what, what, what greater statement could be made than a statement of humility? Because humility comes before all. I mean, what kind of faith do you have if you don't have humility? What kind of prayer can you offer without humility? What kind of service can you give without humility? None. Because... If we don't do it with humility and, 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 and subservience to God, we're declaring we can do it in our own strength. And that's a joke. David, of course, confessed his sin and committed his life to serve God for his purposes, even if that included chastisement. He took the chastisement when it came. There was no, why me, Lord? Primarily because he knew why. And I think of all of us were really honest with ourselves, we would know why too. He understood that the Lord was not only almighty and all-knowing, that there was nothing you could hide from him and, and nothing he could not do, but he also knew that he was merciful and just. That's what he was depending upon. I think David's attitude is uh, well expressed in the words of the psalmist uh, in Psalm 119 where we read already earlier this morning, but let me turn to verse 65 of Psalm 118. The psalmist says, You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good discernment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The arrogant have forged a lie against me. With all my heart, I will observe your precepts. Their heart is covered with fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Most of us, of course, don't welcome affliction. And that's perfectly understandable. And God knows that. 
But hopefully through affliction we do learn his statutes, his laws, his precepts. We learn faith, we learn obedience. And this is the attitude of David. And David knew the best and the worst of it, didn't he? You know? David knew what it was like to be in the slew of despond, to be depressed to the point of, oh God, will I ever be free from this persecution by Saul? To the point of, of being the emperor of a mighty empire. The only time in, in the history, only time in history when Israel could have been considered a country to even be considered amongst the nations of the world. Other than today, of course, but today Israel is counted mostly because of its being notorious rather than famous. Most countries in the world hate Israel today. As we look further at our, at our passage here, we find that when his cause seemed hopeless, David is fleeing for his life and for the salvation of his people, for the safety of his city. He doesn't throw up his hands, however, and run away with his tail between his legs saying, woe is me, I'm undone. Notice what he does. He sets up a spy ring. I'm going to go away, but I'm going to leave my people behind. And they're going to be checking up on Absalom and we're going to discover his plans and his weaknesses and uh, God will deal with him. And so he uses the, he sends Zabiathar and Zadok back says, you go back and you keep your ears open. And when you get information, send your sons down to me at the fords of the Jordan, east of Jericho. I'll have agents there and you relay the information to them and they will relay the information to me. And so David was setting up what would appear to be totally innocuous, the priests. Absalom was so dingy about religious things, he wouldn't even suspect the priests. And this isn't the end of his spy ring, as we will see. Well, let's look at the last uh, section of the chapter. Begin at verse 30. And David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went. His head was covered. He walked barefoot. Then all the people who were with him each covered his head and went up weeping as they went. Now someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. It happened as David was coming to the summit, where God was worshipped, that behold, Hushai, the archite, met him, with his coat torn and dust on his head. And David said to him, If you pass over with me, then you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so I will now be your servant. Then you can thwart the counsel of Ahithophel for me. And are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So it shall be that whatever you hear from the king's house, you shall report to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send me everything that you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city, and Absalom came into the city. So the spy ring is complete. In open humility, David ascends the Mount of Olives, head covered, feet bare, weeping as he climbs that hill. These are all signs of mourning. And I don't think David is mourning for his own discomfort. I think he is a mourning for his nation. He's mourning for his city. He is mourning for his son, Absalom. It may have been 
at that time, as David walks up the mountain, sits down on the top of the Mount of Olives like Jesus would do later, and wept, weeps over his city as Jesus would weep over the city of Jerusalem, that David penned the beautiful third psalm. It's a short psalm. Let me read it. It says in the subscript or the superscript, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of tens of thousands of people who have set themselves round about me. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Can you see David on the top of the mountain, looking down at the city, writing such a psalm? With a heart very similar to the heart of the Savior. In verse 31 of the 2 Samuel passage, we see an example of a godly response to very discouraging news. When David was told that one of his senior counselors, maybe his senior counselor, or at least one who was alongside Hushai, one of his most important counselors, a man by the name of Hithophel, had betrayed him and joined the forces of Absalom's rebellion, he doesn't curse him. He doesn't say a thousand shekels on his head. He doesn't ask God to kill him. But he does go to God to prayer, and he simply prays, Oh God, make his counsel foolishness. How simple. How to the point. How meaningful. Make his counsel foolishness. And God will answer that prayer. Scripture talks about the wisdom of the world is foolishness before God. Evidently, there was an altar on the top of the Mount of Olives. There were altars on the tops of many of the mountains. Uh, altars were built, for example, at Bethel, at Shiloh. At, at places that were important in Hebrew history, altars had been built historically. So near that altar, David met Hushai the archite. This is the first mention of this man. Just as when Ahithophel decided to, to um, uh, ter go over to Absalom's side, this is the first time we hear of Ahithophel either. Ahithophel. But according to 1 Chronicles chapter 26, Hushai was one of David's closest confidants. And what we discover here is that Hushai meets him and he is obviously distraught. His clothes are torn and dirt is on his head and he is mourning for what has happened. I mean, it's sort of like when the British had to surrender at Yorktown. Their band played, the world is turned upside down. The mighty empire of Britain is having to surrender to the pukey little rebels over here in our little colony. How ridiculous this whole thing is. And, and certainly for Hushai, it seems ridiculous that the mighty empire of good, good King David should be set on its ear by some bratty kid. He's called the Archite probably because he belonged to the Archite clan, 
which as best we can tell was a clan that was centered uh, somewhere not too far from the city of Bethel, a little north of, of uh, Jerusalem. <laughs> David here in this passage says, um, you know, you can't come with us because you, you'll, you'll, you'll be a pain to me if you go with us. You, you'll be a drag on me if you go with us. Uh, it sounds a bit cruel. <laughs> I don't want you because you'll be a negative influence here. No, I think what he's simply stating was the obvious. Um, Hushai apparently was quite elderly and would not be able to travel at the speed that uh, David was needing to travel at the pace to escape uh, and to go out into the wilderness. And, but he said, you know, you can do me a real service. You would be of better value to me if you will do what I ask rather than if you were with me and counseling me along the way. And if I could find a way to, to transport you, you would still be better if you will do what I ask. And that is go back to the city. And even though this is going to grate against your very being, report to Absalom and offer your services to Absalom as counselor that you will counsel Absalom as king. And Hushai would have thought, what? <laughs> and then David says, because I need you to counteract the counsel of that traitorous Ahithophel. Some of you know that when they built the Golden Gate Bridge, before they built the Golden Gate Bridge, they brought in the two leading geologists of the United States. And they both studied it. One of them said, if you build this bridge, the first earthquake, it'll collapse. The other one said, you build this bridge, it'll stand forever. <laughs> leading geologists in the land, you know, on opposite sides of the pole. That's kind of like, well, flip a coin. Do we build this bridge or not, you know? kind of deal. And uh, so this is the idea. If Ahithophel says this, Hushai, you say that. So that Absalom will not know or not have uh, agreement of his counselors as to what he should do. Well, Hith, uh, 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 Hushai agrees. He's glad to have an opportunity to serve his king, even though this is going to be a difficult task to go over. I mean, because he has to basically grit his teeth and say, Absalom, I've come to help you. <laughs> because he doesn't think very highly of Absalom, of course. So now we have Hushai in the royal palace. We have the priests, and we have the sons of the priests. We have a fifth column in Jerusalem. We have a spy ring. We, we have people who can know from the very center of power what's going on. I mean, Hushai will be right alongside Absalom when any decisions are being made. And he will be able to report those decisions to Zadok and Abiathar, who will give them to their sons, Jonathan and Himaz. And, and they will either personally or send messengers who will run down to the fords of the Jordan east of Jericho and report everything to David. It's kind of like later on when the Aramean king gets really, really upset because everything he does and everything he says, the Israelites know about <laughs> because Elisha the prophet is being told what's going on and he reports it to the king of Israel and, and, and the, the Aramean king is certain there is a spy in the camp. Well, it is. It's God. <laughs> yeah. If God's the spy in your camp, you are done for <laughs> because you can't even think a thought that he doesn't know about. And in effect, that's what God is doing here through Hushai and Zadok and Abiathar. And so that brings us to the 16th chapter of 2 Samuel, which we will begin to look at next week. <laughs>